All right, so we're going to be in Romans this morning. If you're new here, um, we've been going through the book of Romans. This is the fifth week. And you can catch up on our website or whatever kind of podcasting app you use. You can search for us and find us that way and get caught up. I mean, not right now. It would be a little weird for you to be listening to a sermon while you're listening to a sermon, but, right, double dipping, that's right. If you can multitask that way, go go for it, just get extra, right? Um, but we have, we're in Romans 2, or the end of Romans 2 through um, most of chapter 3 this morning, and we, uh, the last couple of weeks, I took a little bit of a side trip, um, because Romans 1 opened up a can of worms about uh, what is biblical sexuality, and what does God have to say about it? And so we took a little, we didn't to go too far afield from Romans 1, but we paused for a couple of weeks. And so it's actually been, I think, three or four weeks since you were in Romans 1, and I also did an overview of the whole book. So I just want to remind you of a couple of things before, because it all connects together with chapter 2 and 3, which is... Um, there, in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, the first part of chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul in this letter, laying out the basis for the Christian worldview. He tells a story of what's happened in the world and what's wrong with it specifically, and why are we in the place we're in now. He talks about that in just broad, sweeping human terms, okay? And it explains a lot, not just about the world Paul lived in, but about the world we live in right now, okay? He tells a story of how humanity stopped acknowledging God, and this resulted in darkened hearts and futile thinking, pointless, useless thinking, unable to think clearly and think properly, and a darkened heart, which means, means that the lights got turned off, that, that, that sense of internal um, drive to go towards the right things and not the wrong things. Okay? All of that went away because they stopped acknowledging God and worshiping God. This led to disordered sexuality and also the destruction of the moral fabric of society. You can read through chapter 1 and you'll see it wasn't just about sexuality. It was like everything just disintegrated. And the relationships, there was covetousness, competition, malice, greed, and all these things were happening and everything disintegrated. The entire culture became non-functional, okay? You ever look around and just feel like everything, nothing's working? Like none of the values that used to kind of bind us together are binding us together anymore, and everybody's just sort of floating disconnected from each other and doing their own thing, and that's what he describes, and it's kind of incredible. Like it could be a modern-day commentator writing chapter 1. So then in chapter 2, it's very important that we not disconnect chapter 2 from chapter 1. He turns to the Jews who are likely hearing this letter read and shaking their heads in judgment against Gentiles because it was assumed that these were characteristics of Gentiles, this kind of moral breakdown. And they were kind of probably wagging their heads and going, mm-mm, yeah, those Gentiles. Stick it to them, Paul. And then Paul turns the target onto the Jews who considered themselves to be more righteous, 
and tells them that they're actually worse because they're judging people who do these things when they do them themselves. He says you'll actually, there are people who obey the law but don't have the law, meaning people who are Gentiles but are faithful to God, are actually more Jewish, he says, than Jews who have the law, understand the law, but don't follow it. And it gets real quiet when we talk that way, right? So no one is exempt. Everyone gets hit. Paul is an equal opportunity offender. He offends everyone in chapter 1 and 2, which leads us to this morning. So I want to talk for a minute about this because he's going to use some words and categories for different groups of people that if you're not living in the ancient Near East culture, it might just be really confusing to you, all right? Because in this church, you may remember all the way back to my introduction like five weeks ago, that there's Jews and Jewish and Gentile Christians mixed together in Rome in this church, and there's a kind of natural competition between the two because they have two very different cultural backgrounds and outlooks and understandings of what it means to follow God. So these are all Christians, but they're from two very different worlds coming together in one church. And so Paul is going to address both groups, and he uses words like circumcision. And when he talks about circumcision, that was a Jewish characteristic. It was one of the ways that Jews expressed their faithfulness to God. Okay? It's how they identified and said, I'm, I'm in with God, right? I'm a good follower of God. He'll use that category, and he talks about non-circumcision, meaning everybody else, Gentiles. And this, but this difference between Jew and Gentile was not just about circumcision. It was about a perspective on what it means to be righteous and what it means to be a good person. The Jews had a kind of righteousness that was based on external things, and this is still an issue between modern-day religious Jews and Christians. It's probably the heart of the difference between us is that they believe that they, they possessed the law of God, meaning they physically had it, right? It was given to Moses, who was like the, the Jew of all Jews in that time, right? He was the progenitor. He was the beginning, him and Abraham. And God gave the law to Moses. So they felt, well, we're, we're kind of special because we have it. And Paul actually agrees with that. But it's not enough. In other words, it's not enough to have your Bible. You've you got to read it. And it's not even enough to read it, right? We would say you've got to do what it says. And that's maybe a little simplistic. Sometimes you don't quite understand what it says, but that's okay. We all agree it's not enough just to have it. But they didn't think that way. They thought, we're the ones, out of all the people groups on the planet, God gave us the law. And that is, that does make them special, but what it doesn't do is make them righteous. They also believe that they, they would say they agreed with the law of God. That's also important. I know what God says. A lot of people don't even know what God says. I get to know what God says, and I also agree with it. Well, that's pretty good. Good job. Way to go. And they also tried to keep the law of God. Now, they had widely ranging levels of success. If you read through the Old Testament, the story of the Jewish people, they were up and down, right? But they tried, and they felt pretty good about that. We're making attempts, right? We're trying to do, 
but their sense of trying, their attempts, were all external. In fact, even modern-day religious Jews would say, God doesn't care about what's happening in your heart. He doesn't care about your motives. What he cares about is what you do and what you say. As long as you do the right things and say the right things, as long as you treat people well, who cares why you're doing it? God doesn't care. He's not concerned with that at all. That's a huge, massive conflict with what the gospel says, which we're going to see in just a minute. So then the Messiah comes along in the person of Jesus and tells them that God looks on the heart. And I got to get in the notes, you have a couple of examples of that. Jesus is very clear, and it's maybe one of the most controversial things that Jesus ever said among the Jewish people was, oh, no, 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 I'm not just looking at what you do. I'm looking at the heart. So Jesus says things like, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed the sin of adultery. And that would have been like, what are you even talking about? As long as I don't commit adultery, who cares? If I'm a lustful, scummy person inside. As long as no one can see it and I don't commit adultery, who cares? Jesus is like, no, 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 no. God sees your heart and you will be judged based on what's in your heart, not just on what you do, right? This was a massive divergence from the way they thought at that time. And then Paul is going to apply this to the Jews in Rome. He's taken all this from Jesus and he's going to talk to this church who is, again, remember, mixed with people who have this as their background and they're coming into Christianity and people who have kind of an opposite ethic coming into Christianity who, who just say, you can do whatever you want, just do whatever you feel. And they have found themselves in the same community. So Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29 is our first text. It says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So external righteousness, doing all the right things, gets you praise from other people, from mankind. But God, the praise you really need is from God, and God looks on the heart. That's what he's impressed by, so to speak. This is still to this day the primary divide between religious Jews and Christians, at least in terms of religious practice. And we would say, really, it's about what you do with Jesus, right? But the reason Jesus is controversial is because he said it's not just about what you do. The relevance, I think, doesn't end there, okay? There's extreme relevance for us right now because think about this for a minute. This is also the worldview that undergirds most moral frameworks in our culture today. Virtue or righteousness is determined by what is external. If you do good things, say good things, and say them with the right words, then you're a righteous person. Never mind if you are truly a good person. Just learn the unspoken rules of conduct and you will be deemed righteous. So compliance equals righteousness in our culture. The rules that we must comply to may change. In fact, they do. What most of us are frustrated about in our culture is the rules change and everyone's saying, now you've got to look like and act like this. We're going, well, I don't want to act like that. So, so change the rules back to the ones that I agree to. And then we can all be righteous together. And that's not the gospel. This reminds me of a very ancient story, a very old story about 
a father who was wealthy. And he had two sons. And uh, these two sons, if they just waited until the father died, they, would get, they were going to get a massive inheritance. And as long as they managed that inheritance well, they were actually going to be set not only for themselves, but generations after. They would be able to hand down this inheritance one generation after another. These boys were set. And so the first son, the oldest son, he was compliant, very obedient, self-disciplined, rarely ever rebellious. This was sort of how I was growing up as a middle child. Um, not so much self-disciplined, but a model son. In fact, there's a joke in my family. If my parents were here this morning, they would have already said it, which is, I'm the good son. My older brother, so it's reversed in my family, my older brother it was the rebellious one. So in this story, the second son was disrespectful, disobedient, strong-willed, rebellious for everyone to see. And most people would have looked at this family and said, man, what, what a blessing that older son is. His dad is just works hard, he's a good dad, and he's, he's loaded. And his son is just, so, just such a servant, and he never gets in trouble. He always obeys the law. He's courteous and kind. And this that younger son, mm, mm, mm. That boy is trouble. Constantly just, like, just itching to get out from under his father's thumb. And so one day, the rebellious son decides when he becomes an adult, he doesn't want to wait for his dad to die and give him the inheritance. He just wants it right now. So he goes to his dad and insults him. He says, just give me what you owe me now. Because I, I am sick and tired of living in this town, living in this house, obeying your rules. I'm sick of it. I know how to live my life, and I want to live it in a way that's different from how you want me to live my life. And I just want, just give me what you owe me and let me go. And so his father, being a good father, says, okay, I'm not going to keep you here any longer. And he just gives him mass, like basically 50% of his estate, massive amount of money. And the son just takes it and hits the road without looking back. And we all know what he's going to do. I mean, what does history tell us about anybody that has weak character and gets a ton of money, wins the lottery? They all just fall apart because they don't have the character to stand up under the wealth they've been given. And this is exactly what happens to this rebellious son. He goes out and he just spends it all on wine, women, and song, as they say. He parties. He gets a bunch of friends because it's easy to find friends when you've got a lot of money and you're buying all the drinks. Everybody's his friend. And he hangs around the brothels and does what people do in brothels. And before you know it, that money that seemed like a big pile of money that was going to last him forever and could have, he spends, it's all gone. And he finds himself destitute, homeless, and depressed. And he's doing things to survive that he never thought he would do in a lifetime. He never could imagine the things he was having to do in order to survive and live because he had wasted everything and he had burned the bridge with his dad. So now he's out there stuck and homeless and unable to provide for himself. And he comes to his senses and he says, you know what, you know what? I'm, he just realizes he's far from home. Do you ever feel that way? You just get a little far 
away from God and away from the people that you know are a safe place for you, and you're just far, far, far from home. And that's what he realized. He said, you know what, I'll go home, and I'll just beg Dad to let me be one of the servants that lives in his basement. And at least I'll have a roof over my head and food in my belly, and I won't have to betray myself over and over again to survive. So he does that. He goes home, and his dad sees him coming. And you can imagine, like, people would have told his dad what was happening. I heard your son was out there. Man, did you hear? My cousin saw him out there with three prostitutes walking down the street, drunk as as much as you can imagine, just falling over himself, blackout drunk. I can't believe what he's done. He's squandered everything you gave him without a thank you, without a word. And his father would say, I just want him to come home. I just hope my boy comes home. And so eventually, when the younger son comes home, his father sees him and runs out to meet him because he's not mad, he's not bitter, he's not angry, he just is happy that his son is coming home. And he throws a big party for him. Spends a ton of money. Not going, ah. This is what you could have had. He says, I'm just happy you're home. And he calls everybody in at his party with no shame, no embarrassment, no go stay in the basement until you earn your way back into my good graces and because I'm embarrassed by you because of what you've done. Instead, he says, let's have a big party and make it more visible. Now, all this time, the good son, the older son, where's he been? He's been at home. When he hears the news as his younger brother is out there partying, he's been saying, Dad, I I would never, I'd never do that to you. I'm, I'm here, Dad. I'm here for you. And I would never disobey. I was, I'll never be rebellious. I can't believe what my brother is doing to you. And then he comes home and how's he going to feel? What is this? My bratty younger brother's here, and we're having a party. So the, younger, the older brother hangs out outside the party. And I, I love this picture because you can imagine, the, I mean, they didn't have a DJ, but I imagine a DJ at the party. And it's like, mm, 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 inside, right? And the lights are going, right? The red and green and blue lights, you know, that the DJs always bring to the party. And they're going, woo, inside, like a Rios party. (laughs) And he's outside sulking in the dark, sitting on a bench, mad, frustrated. Where's my party? How come I didn't get a party? And his father, being a good father, comes out, finds his oldest son because he loves his son. And he asks him, what are you doing out here? We're having a party. Is the party not good enough for you? And he says, this is not right. That brat of a younger brother has been out there disrespecting you, being disloyal, doing whatever he pleases, and squandering what you gave him. And now he's home, and you're just going to have a party for him? You're rewarding his bad behavior. I've been the good son. I should get the party.
And his father says to him, you know, you've, I've been here the whole time. You could have had a party whenever you wanted to have a party. And what's mine is yours. And it has always been this way. And you could have had a party like this every single day if you wanted. But you didn't. And what we learn from that story, by the way, if you haven't figured this out yet, this is the parable of the prodigal sons that Jesus told in Luke 15, 11 through 32. And the point Jesus is making is that the two sons represent two methods of self-redemption, self-salvation. You have the good son who represents moral uprightness or the good people. And in, in Romans, that would be the Jews who felt that they were, and in Jesus' time when he's talking to the same groups of people, would be the people who felt like they were doing the right things and we're in the good group. And then you have the, the, the other group, which is the group of self-discovery, of self, saving yourself by finding yourself, sowing your wild oats, as they used to say. Those we would call the bad people. The younger son goes out and lives a libertine life with no boundaries, no rules, no restrictions. And he does what he wants, fulfilling whatever desire that comes up. Whatever it is, I'm going to do it. The older brother follows the house rules, lives the life of a good son. The younger son is externally distant from the father, and the older son is internally distant from the father. Neither the good son or the bad son actually knows, honors, and loves the father, both of them are far from home, even though one is physically present and the other is physically distant. They are both equally far from the father. And this is Paul's point. Tim Keller said when he wrote a book about the prodigal sons, he says, it's a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, Jesus does not divide the world into the moral good guys and the immoral bad guys. He shows us that everyone is dedicated to a project of self-salvation, to using God and others in order to get power and control for themselves. We are just going about it in different ways. Even though both sons are wrong, however, the father cares for them and invites them both back into his love and feast. This means that Jesus' message, which is the gospel, the good news, is a completely different spirituality. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between the two poles. It is something else altogether. And that's what Paul is saying. What he's doing here at the beginning of Romans is flattening the categories of the good people and the bad people into one category called unrighteous. Every one of you is completely lost and unrighteous. And some of you need to repent of your obvious sins, and some of you need to repent of what Keller would call your damnable good works that you hold up before God as the reason why you show enough potential that he would save you. That you have stepped towards him in some impressive way that he should then save you. While I'm thankful I'm not like these other people, these younger brothers in the world who don't even acknowledge you. Before Paul gets to that, he, says, he makes himself clear in chapter 3, 1 through 8, which I'm not going to read this morning. He says, 
Um, he's not saying that the Jews are not special in some way. He's not saying, in other words, he's not doing a kind of moral relativism where he says it doesn't matter what you do. It does matter, but it doesn't make you righteous. Just because you do some of the right things doesn't make you righteous. Romans 3, 9 through 20 makes it perfectly clear. This is a really cool section of scripture if you look at He's quoting multiple places in Psalms. It's, fun. it's really cool how he uses scripture here. But I'm not, that's nerdy. I'm not getting into it. But if you if just look at this and just find the verses he's quoting and you'll see how he weaves them all together. It's pretty, pretty awesome. He says, this is verses 9 through 20. He says, what then? Are we Jews, because Paul is a Jew, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, comma, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps, that's a kind of snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And we'll talk more about the relevance of the law later. He gets more into this. But Paul quotes from various places in the Psalms to show that both Jew and Gentile, that none of them are righteous. There is not one person on the planet that is qualified to enter heaven. Not one of you. Not your best. He's like he's saying, put your best person in all of history forward. Let's check them out. And maybe we can find someone that we can compare to every other human being and say, that was the best one. Congratulations, Mother Teresa or whoever you put up there. First of all, we all know if you look close enough, you're going to find some dirt. But also, Jesus says, wait a minute, you're playing the wrong game here. I don't think you were listening to the rules. The rules are put your best forward and compare them to me. And immediately you recognize, oh, yeah, yeah, no one's righteous. <laughs> Not, comma, one. Period. His conclusion is there in verse 19. It says, let every mouth be stopped. Your self-justification projects are over. The good people are bad. The bad people are bad. No one has an excuse or a righteous act to perform that will change your state of un righteousness so just stop talking so imagine humanity's going wait a minute wait a minute what if i did this and i've done that and they did that i can't believe they did that and i didn't do that so that should give me some points at least and he's like no you got no points on the board you got no points on the board so just stop it stop justifying yourself and telling me why you're more righteous than the others 
like Job, who complained to God. He had some reasons. And God goes on a multiple chapters long monologue about all the things he's done, the, all the stuff he's created. And he starts asking questions that you should never answer if God ever asked you. Like, were you there when I put the Leviathan in the ocean? Were you there when I put the mountains there and the seas there and the stars there? Were you there, Job? Were you there? And he just goes, like a wise man. He says he puts his hand over his mouth. No unrighteous human enters heaven, and there are no righteous humans. That's the mathematical formula of the beginning of the gospel. No unrighteous human enters heaven. Not one. There's not one that skates by. And not one human is righteous. You feel the cold reality of the situation. I don't love this here in Romans because there's a natural pause here, almost like that this is where the intermission goes. Like you've just been told that we're all toast. And I really came into this meeting thinking I had some things to hold up and say, look, I, I really have potential if you just give me a chance, God. And I've just been told I got no points on the board, and I've been working hard. I'm sweaty. I've been putting up some good shots, some layups. I'm, I'm in the zone. I'm working hard. I'm doing all this stuff. And then you're going to tell me I got no points on the board? Now for a break from our, to hear from our sponsor. And he had this, like, hellacious pause. See, this is what's wrong with the world. This is really what's wrong with the world. It's not what club you're in or what group you identify with or what ideology you enjoy and think is the best one, what, whether you're a communist or a socialist or a fascist or a Democrat or a Republican or American or South American or Russian or Ukrainian or any, any other category of human beings that you can think of, none of those things count. What's really, really wrong with all of us is unrighteousness, and that none of us are righteous, and none of us can enter heaven. We are stuck and hopeless. And the people we look at and put up as being really good people or put down as being really bad people, we're using the wrong categories to understand the world. When you do that, you're showing yourself that your worldview is broken. So the question is, what story are you telling yourself about the world? What categories are you using to understand other people? To explain why they do what they do and why they are the way they are. You ever just want to say to somebody, who hurt you? Why are you acting this way? How do you answer that question? Who do you think are the good people and the bad people? Be honest with yourself right now. Be honest. Is there some sense in which you look at the good people and assume that they are in some way closer to God? Do you think that the bad people are further from God and therefore harder to save? And we're having this Revelation early in my life working with uh, drug addicts in a rehab ministry for nine months. 
And I went into that thinking in categories like, I'm a good Christian kid raised in a Christian home. I'm a little more gooder than the other people. And those people really need Jesus. Especially, you know, heroin addicts. Well, they really need Jesus. But that's really hard to save them. Because they really need Jesus, they're really hard to minister to, and they're going to be really turned against God. And what I found out was actually the opposite. The religious people that were in that ministry that were addicts were far harder to reach than the people who were living on the street going from hit to hit. And that was their whole existence. We're using the wrong categories. I think it takes actually more faith to reach somebody who's already really religious and thinks they're a Christian than it is somebody who's lost and broken and living in a pit somewhere. Now, for those of you older brothers in the room, don't raise your hand. If you're being, feeling a bit nervous and maybe grumpy and worried that I'm becoming a moral relativist or saying that God doesn't care what you do, don't worry, Paul gets to that. <laughs> right? He always gets to that. We will get a list of things not to do. Just hold your horses. But it's important that we get this. That, that's, that we do good things because we have been made righteous. Not because we're unrighteous trying to become righteous. And I'm just going to climb the moral ladder to God. That is a, it's a failure. It's a non-starter. Before you get to the first rung, you fail. Because... It's God, not somebody else. You're not competing and running your race against your neighbor. What Paul will not ever let you do, even for a second, is let you make your goodness the foundation of your righteousness. Paul will not use your categories of good and bad. He will only see the world as either in Christ or not in Christ. If you're going to have categories, those are the ones you use. Who's in Christ and who's not? Because even right now, if you're a Christian, your righteousness and your goodness and your acceptance before God is in Christ, it's still not in you. If Jesus lets you go right now, it's right to hell with you. Don't pass go, don't pause. Everything you have that gets you into his good graces and into heaven itself is always going to be in Jesus and if you are not in him, if he does not hold you in his hand, you are lost. There's a humility in that, even for those of us who are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, well, you can do some impressively great things. People who are unrighteous have done some amazing good things in history. And the world will look at that with their good and bad categories and will say, well, God should accept that person into heaven. It doesn't seem right that good people would go to hell. And you say, well, that's, you're right. It's not right. There are no good people. Read Romans, man. The categories have been flattened, and it's either in Christ or not in Christ. That is the only category that counts. If you're not in Christ, no matter how good you are, you are not righteous. Lindsay's word earlier about the drowning child being rescued out of a bucket. It made me think about this. If you're not in Christ, you are drowning in a bucket. 
you are absolutely underwater. And all of your wriggling and fighting and squirming to get out of the bucket with all of your good works and your good deeds, trying to escape the position of your birth, the, the situation you were born into, and it was terrible and it was hard and it was broken. You didn't learn how to be a good parent. You didn't learn how to be a good friend. You didn't learn how to be a good spouse or to get along in life. And you're fighting and working as hard as you can to get yourself out of the bucket of water and not drown. And you're using the wrong categories, which you need. And the only way out is for Jesus to reach in there and pull you out. It's the only way to become righteous is if he does it. And so the answer is not try harder. You're drowning. What's wrong with you? It's just a bucket. Get out of the bucket. No, you can't. If you're not in Christ, no matter how good you are, you're not going to be righteous. Okay, I've pounded the bad news long enough. Because in that pause break where everyone squirms, he comes back after the intermission in verses 21 through 24, and he satisfies the question, who then who is righteous, who can enter heaven? Verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the, unright, no, excuse me, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. There's the rest of the story in verse 24. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where is that redemption? In Christ Jesus. It is never, ever, 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 ever in you. For all of eternity, go forward a billion years into the future, your, your redemption is still going to be in Christ Jesus. And every day you're going to wake up and be absolutely blown away that you're in him. And that you, this worm of a person, was pulled out of the bucket where you were drowning and not only pulled out of the bucket and rescued, but you were made a king and a queen in the kingdom of God. You were glorified like Jesus But it will never be you walking around heaven with your chest out and your chin up going, look what I, at last I have accomplished perfection. You will not say that. You will be perfected, but you will never feel that it is yours. It will always be his. So the good news begins with bad news. But I love these verses I just read because it says basically that the bad news becomes good news. Because your righteousness is not in you and all your good things, the categories have been flattened out and we're all in one bucket together of unrighteousness, then the righteousness of Jesus will never be yours. It will always be his. And he gives it to you as a free gift. You don't have to earn it because you can't earn it. You don't have to. That means that the only thing you and I bring to the table with God is all of our sin. All I got for you, God, is this nasty glob of unrighteousness. And in there is some really good stuff that I did, but boy, it stinks like the rest of it. Here you go. 
pile of filthy rags of righteousness. If we are all unrighteous, both the good people and the bad people, then we are all candidates for the grace and mercy of God through Jesus. You are qualified. You are more than qualified because of your unrighteousness. You need it. So our responses, I think there's two responses. One is um, worship, which we're going to do in just a second with one more song. But the other is you bow the knee. Everybody has to bow the knee to Jesus. And that either means for you letting go of all your self-justification with your good works. Well, I'm a good person. Doesn't that count for something? I got at least one point on the board. Being able to, being willing to see your your, your points be zero and let go of all your self-justification. And for others, it might mean coming and saying, I'm going to let go of my self-condemnation because I think I'm a really terrible person. I'm that younger brother who was running out and just really far from home. I don't know that God created me for something more than this. He created me for life beauty, to have a relationship with him, to mean something in the world, and to count. And I know I'm squandering. Every day I look at a sunrise and a sunset, and the beauty of that, it screams out the name of God every time I see it. But then I, and I breathe the breath that he gives me every day, in and out, in and out. He has provided the blessing of another heartbeat and another, another deep breath of his air, and I've squandered it, and I just want to come home. You have to be willing to let him look at you and say, I count you righteous. Not after you come home, but I'm running out to meet you where you are. And so whatever category you think you're, probably all of us is a mixture Sometimes you feel like you need to repent of your pride, and sometimes you feel like you need Jesus to lift you up off the floor. But we all come to him bowing the knee. That's one important aspect of what worship is. Sometimes worship is jumping and shouting and clapping and cheering. and Woo-hoo, it's a party, right? And sometimes it's bowing the knee and saying, I'm laying all my, my project, as Tim Keller says, my project of self-salvation is over. And I'm laying it at your feet. And I just want to worship you in my broken, unrighteous state. And I, that's what it means to become a Christian. So I want to tell you, if, if you're here this morning and you're like, I've never done that. <laughs> like, I'm realizing maybe you've been walking around thinking because you attend a church or read your Bible that you're a Christian. And you're realizing you've actually just been using those things as ways to justify yourself and actually avoid Jesus. You can use your good works to avoid Jesus. I don't need you. And maybe you just need to bow the knee and say, I'd like to actually be a Christian now, please. Or maybe you just need encouragement this morning. I want to pray for you too. But I just want to, um, maybe we can have the worship team come up. Um, I'm going to pray. And then during this next song, um, if you would like to talk to somebody, 
or pray with somebody or have somebody pray for you, whatever you'd like to do. Um, either just for just a matter of you're a Christian and you just need to repent of your wrong-headed effort in the wrong direction and you need some encouragement because you feel condemned and you shouldn't because you're a believer or if you're just realizing I'm not a, I, I'm not a Christian whether you thought you were one or never did and you just want to come and just bow the knee to him and say I receive your righteousness in me I want to be in Christ not outside of Christ and, would you, and just ask Jesus to come in and begin to actually work this righteousness out in your heart, which is kind of where Romans goes after this. Is what does it look like to live as a Christian? So let's pray, and then we'll sing together. And during that song, if you'd like prayer, there'll be people up here to pray with you. Why don't we stand together as I pray? God, for those of us who are in Christ right now, we are so grateful that right now in this moment, we are held in you, in your hand. And what you put in your hand cannot be taken from your hand. We are so grateful that with all of our hard effort, to make ourselves, to justify and save ourselves, we fail, but you have not failed. You have snatched us out of that bucket and saved us and rescued us. And Holy Spirit, I ask you to make that new to everyone here this morning. That simple, deep gratitude and joy that we are His, we belong him. God, would you restore our joy in that this morning? And God, we repent of allowing the world to tell us how we should think and what categories we should use. And Lord, for anyone here that is not in Christ, is not in you, and has never just bowed the knee to you, Holy Spirit, I ask you to encourage them right now. Convict their hearts. And give them the courage to give up, to stop, to put their hand over their mouth, and to stop trying and to come to you with a simplicity and humility this morning that just says, I'm yours, and I need you. I have no other way but you. Holy Spirit, I ask you to give them the courage this morning to talk to somebody about that whether it's people here praying or anyone else, God, that they would just have the courage to talk to somebody about that. But right now, I ask you to help them to make a decision. Give them the faith required to say yes to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.